Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Ferris, and today I've got my sidekick and buddy and Hoyt marketing manager, Jeremy Eldridge, with me. What's up, Jeremy? How's it going, man? Good, dude. Good. I am uh, scrambling trying to get ready for elk season, but right now with our guests that we've got on the phone with us, it's hard to talk about elk, man. Um, we have got the legendary Bill Winky on the phone with us right now. And uh, for any of you that have been living under a rock and don't understand who Bill Winky is, Bill Winky is who I consider to be the foremost whitetail authority um, in our sport. I mean, Bill, welcome to the podcast. It's a privilege having you on here, buddy. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. But, uh, you know, I don't know that I can live up to your introduction, but we'll uh, <laughs> we'll certainly take a crack at it. Buddy, you have for a long time. Um, I remember the first time that I met you, uh, we were in the... Uh, we were in the pisser at the ATA show. <laughs> and, uh, I don't, we didn't shake I hands, no, did we? <laughs> no, I don't think we did. It wasn't okay, co uh, coronavirus not shake hands, no, but uh, it was, it like, was a, yeah. hey, um, <laughs> I, I, I can't even remember. I just think that I, I knew exactly who you were, and uh, this must have been in the mid-2000s. It was okay. for sure before you started Northwest Whitetail. Um, Midwest. You were a Midwest. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> Midwest Whitetail. <laughs> this happens, man. You get kicked in the head this many times. Um, uh, so it was before you started Midwest Whitetail. Um, so it had to have been, you know, 2004, 2005, somewhere in there. Um, yep. But I remember, you know, I looked up to you. Um, I was working for a, a bow hunting publication at the time, a smaller one. And uh, I just introduced myself to you and you stood there and talked to me for a good 10 minutes and, you know, kind of welcomed me to the industry because I think 2003 was my my first year uh, at the ATA show. Um, and uh, and from there on out, because you were so friendly and, and forthcoming with your time and everything, um, I really followed you. I read almost everything that I got my hands on that you, that you wrote and then paid really close attention when you did start Midwest Whitetail. Um, and so, you know, you're a guy that we plan on having on this podcast multiple times. Um, and on this one, you know, I kind of want to just introduce our audience to, you know, Bill Winky and where he started out. And I know that you were writing heavily when I met you. How long had you been writing in the publications uh, uh, or when did you start and kind of how did you get your start in bow hunting? Go down that path. Yeah, it's it's a uh, everybody's got a story to tell, of course. And, and uh, um, especially in the hunting industry, it's pretty rare that somebody just comes out of college and goes to work in the hunting industry. Everybody has this strange twisted path uh, yeah. where they, where they arrive at what they end up doing. And um, I mean, we could talk a lot about that and I'm sure there's listeners that would really enjoy finding out how to get a job in the hunting industry. But, you know, my own path, um, I had a, a mechanical engineering background, mm -hmm. University of Iowa, uh, I worked in the aerospace industry for four years, and then uh, my wife and I got married. And 
we kind of did the opposite of what most people do. You know, most people that get married and they think, oh, we need to buy a house, you know, and think about how we're going to start our family and all that stuff. And we got married and immediately quit our jobs and toured. You know, we had, I think we had $15,000 saved up. Uh, that's what we had, you know, total life savings. And we just said, well, we're just going to go and we're going to travel. And, and when we run out of money, then we'll quit. And then hopefully yeah. in the meantime, you know, we figure out where we want to live and what we want to do, you know, because, you know, the, the old saying is, you know, the, the best time to take risk is when you've got nothing to lose. Um, mm -hmm. So we took we took the risk early, you know, we just kind of winged it. Well, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I think I think you guys both may know Greg Tinsley. Do you guys know Greg Tinsley? He, I don't know him personally. I think I've actually shook hands with him before, but uh, yeah, but I don't know him real well. I think yeah, that's I don't know a, him either. Oh yeah, you guys need to you guys need to know Greg. But anyway, uh, one of the first jobs. Well, I shouldn't say that. The first job I had uh, during this tour, so to speak. So we tried to mm -hmm. augment the income by taking odd jobs along the way. You know, I bailed hay for some farmers, you know, and did anything you could, you know, just to stretch out the time because who wants to get a real job, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so one of the, one of the uh, sessions was six months at High Country Archery. And I'm sure that Jeremy remembers that. And Danny, you probably do too. I mean, High Country was was the early like speed bow 3D shooting company. Everybody was you know, all about high country. Randy Almer was their top I remember, shooter. I remember Spencer well. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, you worked, you worked there for six yeah. months. Is that what I you're was saying? There. I was the yeah, I was the plant manager. Believe it or not, um, really for six yeah for six months at High Country down in uh, oh, it's in Tennessee. I'll think of the yeah. Dunlap, Dunlap, Tennessee. Yeah. And uh, so while I was there, the marketing manager was Greg Tinsley. And they had, Spencer had brought Greg in from Peterson's bow hunting where he was the associate editor. And, uh, yep. he came, he came to high country and six months later, I shouldn't say that during the end of my session there, um, he got called back to Peterson's bow hunting as the editor, you know, the, the right. chief editor, Bob Robb yep. had been the editor and then Bob moved on to do something else. And then Greg Tinsley stepped in. Well, um, I started selling articles to Greg. And, you know, because we yeah. became great friends, of course, you know, working together there. Sure. And that's how it started. I started selling articles to Greg. And, and uh, it's a funny story. I mean, we could talk for a long time about, you know, the way God sometimes puts things in, in your path, you know. But um, so you didn't have intentions of becoming a writer. You basically got a job at an archery company and then just so happens one of your coworkers goes back to work for his former employer as an editor and says, Hey, would you be interested in writing an article ever? That's kind of what happened with you. Yeah. Yeah. And then it kind of went from there and Greg got me connected with, uh, um, Craig at, uh, Oh gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old now. I can't remember names anymore, but dang it. Um, Craig over at Peterson's hunting and, uh, yeah. Craig Boddington and, and Craig yep. lined me up with some work at hunting Peterson's hunting. And then mm -hmm. little by little, you know, Gordon Whittington at North American white Tail started buying some stuff from me. And, uh, you know, Tinsley kept me so busy and it was, it's pretty funny. I mean, you know, the magazine business, if we talked about it, you would get a big chuckle, but I was writing, uh, half of those, those, uh, issues 
And uh, sure. people, people didn't know it because I was using my name and I was using two other names. And I was also ghostwriting for one of the other guys in the, in the <laughs> magazine. So half of every single one of those Peterson's bow hunting magazines for about 10 or 15 years, I was writing them. <laughs> so was, it's was, like, was that was that ever under any of uh jay strangis's uh yeah uh, yep it fell um, under jay yep it fell under jay's as well yeah i figured it was <laughs> yeah but mostly it was tinsley because greg once you know greg you'll find out that you know greg would rather plan the next hunt than sit around you know focusing on you know who's going to write the next article for him um right so i made it really easy for him so he just kept buying stuff wow. from me and he, it was so funny because sometimes he'd call me up at like five o'clock at night and he'd say, Hey yeah. Bill, I need a, I need a bow buyer's guide. You know, like the top 12 bows by tomorrow yeah. afternoon. Um, Research intensive article. <laughs> yeah. Before the internet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it was all phone calls and I, and I was, you know, I was collecting all of the brochures and material at the ATA show and shipping it back to my home every year when I'd go up there, you know, so I had all this material at my fingertips so I could crank that stuff out for him. But um, so anyway, I made his life so easy that he bought a whole bunch of stuff from me. And that's how I got started. And, you know, it kind of led from there. But at one time at the height of my writing career, and I kind of wish it still was like that because it was a pretty simple lifestyle, as you guys know, but I had seven national columns. I had, uh, I was actually the bow hunting editor for Outdoor Life. At the same time, I was the bow hunting editor for Peterson's Hunting. I had a column at Peterson's Bow Hunting. I had a couple others. I had one at North American Whitetail during that time. So I had seven columns at one time uh, back wow. when the magazines were really rolling. And you know, we were talking about you know how do you how do you make a living in this industry? And, and it really just comes down to just being willing to work really hard. So I mean, I was. The, the best year that I had, I wrote 350 articles um, Wow! and uh, doing all the photography on top of that, you know, and selling some photography. So it was, it was a grind for a while, but that was, that was where it all started. It started with Greg Tinsley, you know, sitting in Dunlap, Tennessee. Well, there's a lot of people. We were talking to Chuck Adams on a former podcast just a few days ago, and he was talking about doing an average of 200 articles a year and yeah. that he's got, you know, I, I forget his numbers are over 6,100 articles have been published or something. And you might rival that or beat it. Um, oh, yeah. But what a lot of people don't understand is that organization, like, especially before everything was digital, back when you were yep. shooting, when you were shooting uh, uh, film cameras, mm -hmm. I can't even imagine doing those numbers back then. And even now, just the organization it takes to do that. Mm -hmm. and I remember Bill Krenz telling me a long time ago that, you know, it's easy to go out and write a handful of articles every single year. But when you have to start writing hundreds of articles every single year we see how deep you really are you know well, what i mean and, yeah. and you're right i mean i had uh my brother-in-law was a really good programmer and he wrote yeah. a database software program customized for me so i ran my business off a custom written uh, database software program that my brother-in-law brother-in-law built for me so it was you know there was a lot of uh it wasn't what people think, you know, where you're just kind of sitting around hunting camp and, you know, having fun. Oh, yeah. Shoot, I had a laptop computer. I'd write an article on the way to the airport. I, you know, I mean, it was, you were constantly yeah. working. 
Uh, you never stop. Well, uh, and, you know, when, you, when you're a writer and you're writing magazine articles, the first few that you write and you see your, your stories published, your photos published and everything, it, it, it's a novelty and it is awesome. It's like, oh, you, you know, you're yeah. holding this and you're putting it in your keepsake and everything. And uh, a couple of years into it, all of a sudden they become it's like writing a school paper (laughs) and you get about as excited about writing those articles as you do a school paper. You feel great once every one of them's done, but getting started on all of them, it's you're, you're writing school papers. They're just, they're like kicking out well done reports all the time. Yeah. And it was, it was a grind there for a while. It really was, you know, but um, I think any job is like that. I would rather be grinding in the hunting industry than, you know, grinding in any other industry. Uh, so, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So, yep. Bill, so I'm you, not going to complain you, about that. You start you start writing this heavily back in the 90s. I mean, you're pretty young still at that point. I'm just curious, what's your like? Uh, I mean, what was your hunting background by that time? I mean, I can't think of a guy in his you know 20s having a a, a long enough hunting career to be able to be cranking out so many articles. So, I mean, how long had you been the, hunting? Did, and, and I grew up, I grew up hunting. So I had a real feel for the sport of hunting, but, um, and I started bow hunting when I was 14. So by the time I was say 28 or so, when I was really getting into this, uh, real heavily, the, uh, you know, I had a fair amount of experience there, not a ton, but I didn't write, uh, I didn't come off as the whitetail expert. Um, you know, nobody really pinned, you know, whatever you want to say, pinned me to that to that position. It was all about the technical stuff. So for me, and it was, you know, for better or for worse, it's pretty dry stuff, but I did tons of bow reports. I did tons of bow reviews. I did a lot of, uh, um, you know, like buyer's guides, you know, talking about how one business, you know, some, some company like Hoyt, for example, you know, maybe a, a column about how they operate their business and, you know, a lot of where to yeah. hunt. Uh, I did a lot of stuff yeah. that was, you could do the research to do right. Um, right. Yeah. and then little by little, you know, as the, as the experiences accumulated, then I started picking up more of that white tail slant, um, you know, where I could write a lot of stuff off the top of my head. But when I first started out, I had to research probably 75% or more of the stuff that right. I wrote. Um, now I don't research hardly anything anymore. I just, you know, it's just off the top of my head. Most of it now. Yeah. 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 So when did you move to, Oh, sorry, Danny. Oh, when no, did you, you move to, go ahead. I was just going to ask Bill, when you, when you moved to Iowa and really started to take on that, I don't know, that whitetail niche, that expert status well, on whitetails. Yep. So I grew up in Iowa and then after graduating with an engineering degree, um, you know, i worked in Michigan for four years and I really got into whitetail hunting in Michigan too, because that's a, a, a really traditional state for whitetail hunting. So I oh, got yeah. around a bunch there. Um, did a lot of, of hunting in that state. And then uh, after our stint with, uh, you know, the tour, let's say the tour lasted almost a year and a half, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's worth about four podcasts in itself. I got some stories to tell you. If you want to, you know, like, <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, we really need to talk about that sometime because I don't think I've ever covered it in any public forum. And it was the funniest uh, off the wall type of an experience that you can imagine some of the places that we went and how we lived because you know we stretched 15 grand for a year and a half you know for two people and yeah. in, in, in traveling and uh 
you know, so how we lived and where we went and the stuff we did was pretty comical. But anyway, once that was all over with, um, then we settled back in Iowa. So in 91, late 91, um, you know, we were back there again. So, um, that, that's, that's kind of where all of my writing started really in 91. Um, and then, you know, carried through from there. So I've, I've been in Iowa the whole time that, well, I shouldn't say that we did move back to Michigan for three or four years in the late nineties. And then, you know, for one reason or another, that didn't work for us. We moved back to Iowa again in, in uh, 2002. So uh, other than three years, all the way from 91 until now we've lived in Iowa. Do you Um, feel like you were, uh, you know, once you broke out of the equipment writing type stuff, were you immediately on whitetails? Because when I first when I first started paying attention to you, you were doing a lot of traveling around and you, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I knew of a uh, of a tremendous mule deer buck that you killed not too far from from where I live in Colorado. Um, And you know, I, I know from talking to you in the past that uh, you reached a certain point where you kind of stopped doing all the traveling and really, really concentrated on just hardcore whitetail material. Um, tell us about, you know, kind of how how all that happened and how that transition happened and when you transitioned to really drilling down and narrowing it down to just whitetail, you know, a lot of whitetail type of material. Yeah, and I think that I, that I lived the adventure. Um yeah. While the kids were pretty young, like really young. And then mm-hmm. as they started to get a little bit older where, you know, I would say they were uh, getting involved in activities and so forth. And um, then it was time for me to be around more. And it also yeah. just co- coincided with when the Internet started to take the wind out of the sails for the print magazines. You know, mm-hmm. so I was kind of in that flux area. I think that was maybe the why in the road, you know, where. I couldn't do the number of articles. I couldn't write the number of articles that I had because the magazines weren't there anymore. They were going out of business. Um, mm-hmm. You know, television and the internet were sucking up all the all of the uh, advertising revenue. So the number of pages were dropping, and then pretty soon the number of publications themselves were dropping. Um, so I and, and Hoyt was instrumental in, in part of that transition. I'm sure Jeremy doesn't know this, but I had a, fo- a photography project that I did for many years, and uh, part of that kind of spilled over into video. So I was doing these little video tips and then distributing them to various websites to use on their sites, you know, for content. Well, that, you know, I got to thinking, what could I do with this camera? You know, I've got this camera and all this editing equipment, you know, what else can I do with it? And that's sort of where the whole Midwest whitetail concept started was, you know, kind of a, a, a secondary thought. It wasn't like I woke up one morning and said, I need to do a hunting video series. Uh, it was, well, I've got this camera and, and I've got this, you know, I've learned how to edit. Uh, what else can I do to make money? Because the magazines are going away. You know, I can't, I can't just, you know, try to ride this thing out because it's, there's not enough momentum in the print market anymore to, you know, to make that what it was. Uh, right. As you well know, Danny, I mean, you, you lived that too. Um, sure. So, so anyway, that's where that started. And, and it just, it just happened to be, you know, and again, we talk about, you know, how, how God places things in, in, in the road at the right time for the right situation. Um, that took me home. I mean, that brought me home because the easiest way for me to produce content was in my own backyard. Um, right. So Midwest whitetail sprang up on my farm, in my own backyard, in my little, you know, two, two person office. Um, and it grew from there. And uh, I didn't travel anymore after that, uh, which, you know, kept me 
at home for the activities that the kids were involved in, which made you know life a lot simpler for us, you know, as a family. Um, sure. But that's kind of where the real, you know, the the white tail, you know, heavy focus came was, um, you know, right around that 2007 2008 timeframe. Right. And I remember I, I considered you and I still do a visionary um, because the, after the first couple of seasons of Midwest Whitetail, you were turning that you were the first guy. Well, I think it started out as a television show a, a no. year or two into it. No, yeah, it started well, Internet only. Because that's right. right. And if people actually knew, they think, oh, boy, these guys had that, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We we really didn't. No, we didn't. And we couldn't do a TV show because we didn't know enough to do a TV show. So we had to do the Internet. And then as we found out, well, the Internet is where people want to see this stuff anyway, because it's so spontaneous. You can produce content from yesterday's hunts and post them today. You can't do that on TV. You know, so that's really where our niche started was producing that kind of spontaneous content online. And then, you know, we felt like, well, you know, we, if we're going to make some more money with this business and grow it, we got to have, you know, more media. So the next step was, okay, maybe we can have a TV show. Well, <laughs> I got some stories to tell. Let me, let me tell this story. This is pretty funny. The, okay. Uh, okay. So, so Sportsman Channel, you know, is now, of course, a, a, a part of the Outdoor Sportsman Group, but... I think they were, I think that was maybe one of their first years of being with OSG. They didn't have enough shows to fill all of their, all their spots. So one of the guys called me up and he said, we'll give you Q4 for free. Um, In fact, we'll, we'll revenue split it with you. You know, you can have half of the commercial time. We'll take the other half. We just need your content. So I said, okay, well we can, you know, we can put together 13 episodes. So we spent that summer um, myself and uh, an intern producing 13 mm-hmm. episodes of Midwest Whitetail for television, you know, fitting into the TV format. And uh, mm-hmm. we posted that up. And of course, we <laughs> back then they had online voting, you know, for fan favorite right. shows. We just completely <laughs> dominated that, that online voting, um, you know, because we had our still our primary product was the web show. You know, so we had everybody sure. one click away from voting for us. So we won the best new show um, and they gave us the spot Q4 only. And then uh, you know, we just asked our viewers to vote and we won the best new hunting show or something like that. And we never looked back. And, and, and this is, and this is of course, you know, who cares now because it's, you know, water under the bridge. But I told one of my friends, I said, as long as we can win awards, we're going to keep doing yeah. TV. You know, we'll keep doing this. <laughs> But so then they changed it. We won five years in a row and then they changed yeah. it. So that it wasn't the fan voting anymore. It was like this board of people or something. That was the, my last year. I didn't do television yeah. anymore after that. Uh, it wasn't that lucrative. And we figured out a way to replace whatever we were making from TV anyway. But I thought it was kind of funny that, that uh, we just kept doing it until we could no longer win. And then we just quit like taking our football well, and going home talking to me at the awards that at, you remember the sportsman's channel awards. It was, I believe it was the first year that you won it. And I talked to you right after the award ceremony stopped. Um, and I just remember thinking he, 
he's a genius because you're exactly right. You had all those people online. Um, you had been doing that, uh, spontaneous content model for several years. And I remember they, there was somewhere where some of those results were published and you had walked away with all these people that were engaged online. And I was thinking, man, that was, that was just genius. And I also remember thinking that, I, I I was producing Bowhunter TV at the time, and yeah. I, I I think I was also producing Predator Nation um, and uh, Arrow Affliction at that particular time. So yeah. working on several different shows, and of course our TV model. If you go out and you you know have a successful hunt tomorrow, it airs the next fall. So you have all kinds of time to get like supplemental video and all this time to put that episode together. Um, and what you were doing over there on that website was literally going out and turning that content around in a day. And if any of you go out and you start hunting, let's say that you start hunting hard, hardcore whitetail hunting, Halloween timeframe, somewhere around there. And you're going out and every waking moment, you're trying to be in a stand for the next 10 days or 14 days. You're exhausted, exhausted. (laughs) So for you to turn around and come back every, you know, instead of taking a nap in the middle of the day or something like that, you're going in and you're trying to spit out all this content that you're having to then post the next day. I, man, it must've been really hard in the beginning. Well, and and we got, we got better at it. Of course, it's like anything, you know, uh, over time you find out where you can trim it down and how you can become lean and efficient. So it's at the point now where we do daily video blogs on Midwest Whitetail. So you know, my, my cameraman last year was a guy named Drake Lamb and, uh, we would hunt and we'd hunt the morning. And, and of course, you know, you don't hunt all day. Everybody thinks, how often do you hunt all day? But they think I'm going to say, well, 15 times. Well, it's zero, you know, because we got to go back to the office, download, yeah. you know, all that footage, get the project started and then go out for the afternoon hunt. And at the end of the afternoon hunt, we come back, Drake takes what he built at midday. He goes into his office, his little home office. And within a couple of hours, he uploads that to the uh, Midwest Whitetail website and to the YouTube channel. Today's hunt is on tonight. Um, and then the next morning, we get up and do it again. And, you know, I would have to take days off just for him and, and for me, too, you know, because there's a lot of stuff that goes on during the day that I have to you know, react to as well. But um, those guys that were that were producing that stuff for me over the years, doing it that way, I mean, that's really hard so exhausting yeah <laughs> i just so every, thinking about it it's exhausting oh yeah but but it's like it's like crack to us yeah. viewers though bill yeah. i mean we we think about someone like me i live in utah i get a week of vacation where i head somewhere in the midwest and hunt try to hunt the rut but if i miss it you know let's say i, I my last day of the hunt i got to go home and the rut was just about to kick off i mean I'm going home majorly depressed. Like I'm done. I'm done hunting whitetails for the year, but I can every day get on Midwest whitetail and live, I guess, vicariously through you and your team and just watching these hunts. And, and I'm just sitting in my office, just dying that I'm not in a tree stand, but I'm at least kind of participating at some level in the rut, you know, through what you guys are doing. And, and it's been both good and bad. It's good because I enjoy watching it, but it's bad because, man, it's so painful to not 
to know that I'm not out there being part of it, especially on those days where, you know, you guys just have amazing, oh, yeah. amazing morning in the stand with rut activity, the deer just going crazy. And here I am sitting in my office working, you know, it's, so I well, love the show. I've, I mean, I'm addicted to it. I, I cannot get enough of it. I, I watch it, uh, chasing November and I watch the Midwest whitetail shows and, um, you guys have done a great job with it. And, uh, man, I don't know. It's just, like I said, it's good and bad. It's good because I love watching it, but it's bad because, oh, it's just torture that I'm not there. Well, it's, it's funny because Jeremy and I are both Western guys, of course. Um, I've got some whitetail hunting very close to, to home here that I can, depend upon what tag I drew, I can I can go out and, and do some hunting on a consistent basis. Um, but still not like somebody that's living out there in the Midwest. And I think for the guys in that demographic that are out there scattered throughout the Midwest and portions even of the East and the and the South that are whitetail hunting their tails off right at that time, but they have a day job and they've got to go to work for, you know, Monday through Friday or whatever, and they're trying to get out and hunt in the afternoons, but they're definitely going to hunt on the weekends and maybe take a long weekend or two during that time. Those guys, I know rely so heavily on your content for what's going on and what the deer are acting like and and you know if they can't be in that stand (laughs) they're checking out what happened with bill and his boys today and i i would imagine you get a ton of feedback about that don't you bill yeah and and uh you know once we once we went on youtube uh of course there's no friction when it comes to feedback i mean on the website the feedback that we got was mostly emails coming in you know because we didn't have this real interactive platform on the website but then once we really started going to all these other platforms gosh the feedback uh, i mean it was almost too much feedback to be honest with you you know you because anybody that's got any kind of opinion um gets to tell you what they don't like <laughs> about you you know but yeah but, uh, the the uh we did get a lot of that feedback really is how you build a business i think today i think in this right. age where the the viewer or the customer can tell you immediately what they like or don't like as long as you're mm-hmm. responsive to that and and you mm-hmm. stay nimble enough that you can adjust to what they're telling you um you can give them what they want and that's yeah. basically what yeah. we did over the years we basically turned midwest whitetail into the machine that the viewers wanted uh because they kept yeah. telling us you know so um, there's stuff that we do that, that we feel like is there's no secrets, but there's stuff that we feel like we've gotten really good at that maybe sets us a little bit apart. But uh, ultimately, it comes from you know us trying to be responsive to what the viewers wanted. What they really want, sure. people are surprised. What they really want is to learn something. You'd be yeah, shocked that's how exactly often right. they want to learn something. They don't want to just be entertained. Um, so we try it's to raise. Yep. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, a, a very smart man once told me that. Um, when it comes down to it, Danny, nobody cares really deep down what you went out and did. What they care about is how they can go out and do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, we've learned that yeah, over the years. So we've, we've kind of stuck to it. And we feel like there's two things that really are pillars of our content. One is we try to teach. And the other one is we try to tell a good story, you know, so that um, we hook people with our storyline, whether it's a specific buck that we're hunting, whether it's a public land, you know, uh, challenge or whatever it is, there has to be a storyline that continues to draw people back. But while you're in the process of doing that, you're teaching them 
but not by taking this moment and saying, well, now it's our time to, you know, lecture you on how to hunt scrapes. You, you teach them right. by doing it. They get to learn with you rather than from you. But it takes a different right. style of communication in order for that to happen. Um, you have to be really in tune with with communicating what's going on. That way they can learn with you uh, and you don't have to stop and try to teach people. They'll just learn right along with you as you go. Uh, but anyway, that's that's kind of what we figured out over the years. And, and uh, um, you know, it's the formula has been working. I mean, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. We're up again this year, you know, on viewership numbers. And and uh, I keep thinking, oh, man, there's no way we can keep growing. But we just continue to keep growing. So, um, you know, it's a testament to not just myself. You know, I mean, little by little, you mean, I'm become becoming less and less of a factor in this, which is healthy because, you know, I can't do this forever. Um, the younger guys right. are stepping up and the people who are editing it and everybody is, you know, taking that, that starting point and, and, you know, that, that I kind of created through, you know, luck and, you know, God's grace and, uh, they're moving it forward. Um, so, right. you know, that's what I like. I like the, the, the fact that it's growing, maybe not because of me, maybe in some cases in spite of me. <laughs> right. Well, I've I've got a question for you, Bill. I've you know I've done my share of hunting with a camera behind me, and I, it, there's cool parts about it, and there are really some pretty big drags about it. And you know, imagining getting to the point where almost all of my hunting, I had a camera right behind me, is is. Uh, might make some people want to pull their hair out. So what are some of the parts about that that you enjoy and that you, that you don't enjoy and how have you, what kind of adjustments have you had to make over the years? You know, I never, it never really bothered me um, because I was fortunate that all the guys who filmed me were people that I liked. Um, Right. You know, so we had, we had a good time. You know, I never had a guy that worked for me or worked for somebody who was filming me, for example, that I just didn't want to be with. Um, yeah. So we had fun. We always just had fun, you know I mean? Uh, I think that's what kept it good. Um, you know, there were days where you knew that the cameraman cost you a deer, but yeah, you know, at the, at the end of the, at the end of this whole thing, it's like, eh, you know, I've, I've killed quite a few nice deer. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter if I kill another really big deer or not. You know, it, it's right. I'm not saying that in a, in a bad way, like I've, I've, you know, killed so many that, you know, it doesn't, you know, who cares, but it's more like you get to that age, you get to that point where you're like, I just love to hunt. And, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and so, you know, as long as I don't want to have to worry about charging batteries and making sure that we've got enough yeah. and that the camera's not freezing up and that we've got enough batteries for the microphones and all that stuff. You know, it's, yeah. it's so nice to go out without that sometimes, <laughs> you know? Well, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working toward that direction. I mean, I'm sure that long-term I'm not going to be, you know, in front of the camera all the time, but I believe that the machine is in place now that it doesn't need me, um, you know, to, to, to keep the machine you know, on, on a level plane. Uh, but I never hated the camera. Um, I'm not a, a, an extrovert. I didn't like, like, you know, having that camera in my face, but I didn't mind it being there while I was hunting. I didn't mind that person being there. Um, you know, I won't say that it was that I loved it, but I didn't mind it. So, you know, maybe some people, it, it would get on their nerves more. I know there are some people who just have to be, you know, it has to be solitude. 
Um, right. and, and, you know, I could go back to that again, no problem at all. But, uh, like I said, the people who have filmed me over the years, I've really liked them as people. So, um, yeah, you know, we, well, it, we makes, had, it makes a difference and whether you're having fun or not makes a whole lot of, di- a huge difference on how, how compelling your content comes out. Yeah. Um, yeah. because it, it's hard to fake having fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. it, well, it, it really is. I think another benefit of Bill, of you filming all these hunts, and, and you know, I've talked about this, but I mean, you have all this footage where you can go back and look at like, like how much a, a buck drops or tries to jump the string or, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, there's all these different scenarios where you've been able to go back and look at footage and probably, um, you know, learn a bunch. And I think that's, I don't know what you being the whitetail expert that we all know you are, you just keep learning more and more through the footage you have and the experiences you have, and you can go back and review it. Um, uh, you know, Danny and I were talking earlier about your thoughts on, on deer jumping the string and some of the things you've, I don't know, tried or, or put into practice. Um, yeah, there was a, there was a period there, Bill. And, and the reason I was talking to Jeremy about this was because just this last week we had Jace Bowserman out here and me and Jace were doing some antelope hunting and we decoyed this antelope into uh, 50 yards and he took his, he took his time coming in. He stood at 80 for a long time, staring at us and finally, you know, kind of calmed down and decided that our bow mounted decoys weren't, you know, a dragon. And here they, here they cut, here he comes and he comes to, to 50 and Jace had been stuck on his knees for so long that when he paused again at 50 yards, um, we were afraid that he would just stay there the same amount of time he had at 80 yards and that Jace would get stuck in that uncomfortable position again. And I, I just told him when the antelope turned broadside, you know, go ahead and try him. And I even reminded him right then, you know, hold, hold low on this thing, you know, and, and long story short, that thing hit the dirt. I mean, hit the mm. dirt with its chest, the arrow bounced off top of his back and we had video of it and we were able to go back and slow it down, look at it. And Jace made a perfect shot. Had that mm. antelope stood, you know, where, where it was standing when he released the arrow, it was a hard shot. He did hold low um but in that situation he literally would have had to been holding off of hair to -hmm. make that shot and i specifically remember getting really enthralled with some of your content a few years ago because i think you had like two years in a row where that happened to you and that's one of the beautiful things about your platform and the way that you're doing things is that you are turning around in that real time and you're not getting a whole lot of editing of this because it has to be it's turned in that night um and and we got your real reactions to it (laughs) in the thought process and and i know that you took a real deep dive into what you should actually do on deer and 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 whitetails specifically but it applies to so many other species so like tell us a little bit about what you've learned um, just cause I'm super curious on, do you, have you established some rules for yeah. when you do what and where you aim on a whitetail when, uh, when you, when you're fixing to make a shot? Yeah. And this is the, the worst part about, um, the business, unfortunately, is every time you screw up, even if it's an honest mistake, um, you just get crucified, you know, and, and yeah. 
you know, so most people just don't show this. They don't talk about it because they don't want to have their heart on their sleeve, you know, but our format for better or for worse, we just show everything. So we show yeah. these screw ups and uh, you just get roasted, uh, especially on yeah. YouTube. I mean, to the point where people are saying, you know, I can't believe you're bow hunting. You should be a gun hunter. You know, what are you doing? You don't represent our business. Well, you don't represent, it's like, boy, you feel really bad, you know? So it comes to a point where you feel like, man, I don't really want to do this anymore. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, so I had a, a, a stretch there where, you know, I probably had four or five really good bucks drop on me. And, uh, you know, I, I was trying to play it smart each, each time, you know, I'd try to figure out what to do, you know, how to play that deer. And so, you know, I had some, and none of them killed the deer, you know, they were all either, right. you know, real high hits where the deer showed back up again, or in some cases, you know, like you said, it kind of bounced off their back or, you know, that no man's land, you know, I know there's a no man's land because I've seen it, um, multiple times because of this string jumping stuff. But anyway, uh, uh you know, I took the, the the bloody end of the spear on that stuff uh, from the viewers to the point where, you know, I'm not lashing out at, at the, you know, the way people are, but um, I don't really even want to do it anymore. Uh, I don't want to show somebody a mistake anymore. It, it just, it's right. not worth it, but we did it. We did it for yeah. years. I did it for years and just got beat to a pulp. Well, anyway, um, and this is what's comical. I'll tell you what I, the conclusion I came up with. And then I used that conclusion and, and I, I missed a deer that by rights should have dropped. He didn't drop and I skimmed hair off his brisket. And of course, all the viewers are like, oh, you, you know, you stink. What are you doing? You know, you, you, it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't win for losing on this thing, because even when I do what, what I'm supposed to do and it doesn't quite work. it's I, oh. So the conclusion I came up with after all of that, you know, feeling sorry for myself commentary um, yeah. is uh, if, if they're alert and even some, to a certain degree, if they're not alert, because I've seen so many deer, especially does will drop, they can have their head down eating soybeans at 30 yards and you shoot and they're not even in the sight picture anymore. When the arrow gets there, it's like, how, how right. do they do that? <laughs> and then the funny thing is, here's the funny thing. That doe will go, she'll make a little loop and she'll come back to sniff the arrow. Like, what the heck happened? So then you take the same shot again and you don't aim low again and she doesn't duck and you kill her clean. What what are you supposed to do? I mean, yeah. you took two shots at the same deer. One time she was completely relaxed, ducked off the map. You missed her. And then and she mm-hmm. comes back again within a minute and you take the same shot again. She doesn't move and you kill her. Um, so mm-hmm. what is the takeaway? You know, so the only takeaway that I could come up with is you have to miss low because, right. you know, the, the certain percentage of them aren't going to do what you think they're going to do. I don't care how much you study deer, how much you, you say, oh, I get their body language. I'm some expert on this. You're not. Uh, I'm just being like right. totally blunt. I've just seen too many deer that did what they shouldn't do uh, from a reaction yeah. standpoint. So all you can do is be the most conservative possible. So, you know, my shot selection criteria now is if they're 25 and further, and, and this is northern whitetail, I think southern whitetails are even quicker. You know, you might be 20 yards yeah. and further. I'm, I'm already at the heart on, on any whitetail okay. at, at 25. Okay. And, and if, if they're 30, you know, I'm right at the brisket line if they're alert. And if they're 40, and I don't shoot past 40 anymore, you know, because you just can't predict it. If they're 40, you got to be mm-hmm. off. You got to be off the deer. Um, 
right. if, if they're even the least bit alert, because the odds are they're going to drop 10 inches. Um, and and yeah. people, and just for everybody that's, that's, that's uh, listening, you know, they're not really trying to avoid the arrow. They hear that sound. And in some cases, I think they even see the arrow, especially if you grunt to stop them and they're looking mm-hmm. at you in the tree. I think they see the bow move. I think they see the arrow even before they hear the sound of the shot, but they're reacting and, and they're not reacting in a way trying to elude the arrow. All they're doing is dropping down to load their legs up you know, so they can. Yeah. yeah. So in the process of gravity, letting them fall in order to load their legs in order to spring forward. Um, that's, that's what causes that spring jump or string jumping. So, uh, anyway, the, the, that's the conclusion I've come to is, is, uh, you've got to play, you've got to play it as if they're going to drop, even if they're showing no obvious signs of being a, a jumper. Um, Right. So you don't want to be off, you know, at 30 yards, you know, you, you need to be, if, if they're totally relaxed, um, you need to be on the heart, but if they're mm-hmm. alert, you need to be on the brisket line. Um, and, and anything past that, or if it's probably, dead silent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it, if it's just dead silent like yep. that, you know, you're, they can, they can get out of the way awful fast, you know? Yep. And then um, here's the other thing too, is, is, you know, I've learned this and I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure food for debate. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, product type, uh, tech type stuff that we can talk about, especially with, you know, Jeremy, Jeremy being the marketing manager of a bow company, but you can't make a bow quiet enough. Um, you know, and everybody says, Oh, that's why I shoot a recurve. Well, I guarantee you, if it's dead still out, they're going to hear that recurve fire. Um, Absolutely. you can't make a bow quiet enough. So all you got, and this is where people argue with me. So the only hope is to make it fast enough. So it's yeah. like, why are we having this argument about, oh, that bow is loud. Their bow is loud. That's why they're dropping. Well, they're not dropping because the bow is loud. They're dropping because you can't make a bow quiet enough. Um, so let's make them faster. Um, and this is just my philosophy. I mean, obviously you got to find that happy balance, but um, I want fast bows and fast arrows you know, in order to combat string jumping. Um, because I don't believe I can make one unless it's really windy and the leaves are rustling. I don't believe I can make a bow quiet enough um, where they don't hear it on a frosty November morning. Uh, well, and then you've you've got that basically debate about, okay, so you increase the bow's speed by 25 feet per second. You went from 280 to 305, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, and I had an elk drop the string on me last year. Um, and that doesn't, you, you, you're like, really an elk? Uh, it, yeah, this was a big mature bull elk and mm-hmm. he, he jumped the string. Yeah. Um, we've got it on video. He was 28 yards. The arrow would have impacted almost exactly where I was aiming had he not moved. And he moved a lot like, uh, over foot. Yeah. Um, and, uh, because of the angle that the cameraman was at and because I was shooting a Luminoc, you could see frame by frame and we had a decent frame rate. Mm-hmm. So you could see that arrow flying at him yep. and you knowing that he was 28 eight yards, you could see approximately where it was, where yep. you could almost see in his eyes, his brain told him to start dropping. And it was still a couple frames before his body actually started dropping. But it looked to me like it was 18 yards. Yep. I was going to say 20. It was like it was 10 yards before that arrow got to him. Yeah. I was going to say 20. He was. Yeah. 
20 yards. So yep. um, on a, on a white tail, I would think that that gap might even be a little bit shorter. It's not like they're moving the entire time. They're, they're literally just moving the last few yards that that arrow is flying there. And they get that much drop in that much time is 25 feet per second of extra bow speed enough to close that gap by five yards probably not five yards but maybe by a couple inches on impact um so that that's what you're looking for is is it's a game of inches in the end you know like they say football is a game of inches bow hunting is a game of inches when it comes to impact point because yeah um gosh an inch makes a huge difference in whether you hit the heart of the brisket or whether you catch absolutely you know, like right behind the heart, you know, which can be paunch. Basically, it looks like a really good hit, but it's not. I mean, there's some mystery hits out there that that, you know, we've encountered over the years. But um, 25 feet per second can make that difference. You know, it's not going to gain you those five yards, but it might gain you right. two inches less drop in that deer. And, and, you know, the reason I knew it was 20 is because I've done that same study where we just go through, you know, we load the footage on and then we click, click, click frame by frame. And then we see yeah. where they start to move and where is the arrow. The arrow is about 20 yards from the bow when the deer start to drop, typically. Um, right. So your your average is probably, uh, it's safe to say, 20 yards, 18 to 22, yeah. somewhere in there is yep. where they're capable of getting out of the way. Yeah, they're starting to drop at least. And the faster you are, the less they're going to clear uh, before the arrow gets right. there. And that's just, that's my philosophy and again, not everybody shares that same that same thought, but you're going to find me in the grave before I'm going to change my mind on that. Well, I saw the pain the pain on your face on a couple of those, <laughs> so I know where that philosophy was developed. Um, yeah. And so, so for for Bill Winky, what is the where do you like your bow speed to be on your whitetail setup? Well, where, what what speed are you shooting? I, I like also two things. So there's the balance, and we talk about having that balance. I like being able to hit him in the shoulder and still be able to kill them. Um, yeah. So I like to, to know that I'm not just shooting a knitting needle, you know, or some little, you know, 400 or 350 grain, you know, arrow. So I've got, uh, I shoot a, a reasonably heavy arrow, but I've got a pretty good draw length and, you know, pretty good draw weight. So I'm in that neighborhood of about six grains per pound of, of draw okay. weight. So if you're looking at it saying, okay, I shoot 70 pounds, that'd be a, a 420 grain finished weight arrow would be my recommendation in that situation. I mean, I'm at, you know, over right around 80 pounds or so. I'm about 525 grains, I think, of finished arrow weight. Um, you know, but I'm getting 305, 310 feet per second uh, with these fast Hoyt bows that I'm shooting. And, and I shoot a small diameter arrow because, again, I'm looking for that penetration advantage. Um, I use a conservative broadhead, one that doesn't open up, you know, super huge so that if I do miss my aim point by a little bit on the forward side, uh, I can still kill them, you know, and, and yeah. with an elk, it may not make a difference. You know, in some situations you might say, well, I can't kill him if I hit him in the shoulder anyway. So what's the point? But with a whitetail, you can. Um, yeah. So you, you, you can set your stuff up so that there's really no hit, a body cavity hit that you don't kill a whitetail, um, even going through the shoulder. Well, if you can pull 80 pounds in, you know, five degree weather after you've been sitting motionless for, for yeah. you know, three hours, which is a chore, you know, like trying to draw slowly and, and quietly and controlled with 80 pounds when you've been sitting in, in 
sub-freezing temperatures for a long time is really hard. You've got to be in condition to do that. Um, well, I so, do isometrics, Danny. Um, oh, yeah. About every, well, yeah, about every 15 minutes, I'll, I'll do isometrics on my, on my drawing muscles um, just yeah. to keep them warm. But, yeah. Yeah, that um, that that's that's a load to be pulling in a whitetail in a whitetail stand, um, and getting three oh five out. Of, how long is your draw length, Bill? Thirty two. Oh yeah, you're shooting telephone poles. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you've got some power stroke behind that thing. Yeah. Um, but a, over a five hundred grain arrow and getting three oh five out of it, yeah, you're 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 going to be doing some damage on those things when you hit them. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, Bill, when you said you like to be able to kill him in the shoulder, is that just in case you hit him in the shoulder, or do you like yeah, to aim yeah. for the shoulder? No, I don't aim for the shoulder. Um, I've had some quartering toward shots, and again, the viewers kind of take the fun out of, of what I do sometimes, but um, <laughs> a quartering toward shot with the right equipment is a is a slam dunk. Um you just pound them right through that shoulder with that stuff I've got, you know, and it's going to pass all the way through. No problem whatsoever. It's a very clean kill, but again, you know, it's not for everybody. And even if you communicate the fact that, you know, I'm shooting a 300 wind mag here, not a, you know, a, a 222. Um, yeah. You know, it's still, you're still going to get a certain segment of, of the, of the population that's going to think that you've ruined the sport. Um, so I'm pretty careful about that, but I would have no problem at all with a quartering toward shot with that setup of shooting them right in the shoulder and, and having, you know, perfect, perfect, you know, results. Um, but, uh, that's not what I do. Uh, but if I accidentally do, you know, like sometimes yeah. you pull the shot a little bit or whatever, I just like to know that I've got the equipment that can stand up to it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, again, like if it, if the caliber of the rifle that you carry makes a difference in what types of shots you should be able to take. It's the same thing with the bow. I mean, it's just that, you know, we haven't been taught to think that way. Um, so I'm not going to be the yeah. martyr that goes out there and tries to change how everybody thinks about this, but, um, no, that's, that, uh, I, I, you gave me some really good ideas just by saying that. I mean, uh, um, I am shooting more like, 280 feet per second right now i've added a little bit of weight to my arrow um i am uh, uh i'm only shooting 70 pounds um i've never uh, i never really felt like i'm a decent sized guy and uh, certainly not brute strong but not weak either um and there's just been situations hunting various game animals not just whitetails where 80 pounds for me drawing it really slow and controlled trying to get away with drawing while something might have its eyes on you or something like that has always been tr tr uh, tremendously difficult and at certain times um, when I do get it to full draw, I've exerted my muscles so much trying to draw it that slowly that uh, I'm a little shaky once I'm at full draw. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, yeah. And it might just be a, a matter of shooting more and working out just a little bit more. But um, uh, I'm going to rethink my setup just based on what what you said, because I've had a couple of painful string jumping situations over the last five years, uh, a couple of them on whitetails and, and other species that I was just talking about. But um, one other question that I have for you, Bill. So, you know, we're two months away from prime time whitetail rut. And 
a lot of our listeners, I would say, if we're talking to the average whitetail hunter, I don't think he's a guy that owns his own property. Um, I think that he's a guy that either has permission on somebody's property to hunt or has some ground that he uh, traditionally hunts, whether it's a friend's ground or uh, lease ground or something along those lines. And um, everybody's starting to think about it right now. And with that amount of time left, anything from bill winky as far as man here's a couple of things that you might want to think about doing that might be a little different that you haven't done before right now you know two months ahead of time that might increase your your odds going into the season and i I know it's putting you on the spot and i didn't really give you time to think about it but i'm i'm curious what you have to say because i'm one of those guys i'll be headed to iowa this year and i'll be hunting a friend's place that i've hunted before and i'll have uh you know six days to do it and you know six days to capitalize and it'll be during that good part of the year but i'm interested in what you have to say about that and what your thoughts are yeah it's a the thing about the rut people think that it's wide open all the time but it's really not um the rut kind of goes in ebbs and flows and uh you can't really predict those because a lot of that has to do with you know which doe is close to your tree stand there might be a hot doe nearby and you'll feel like you know the rut is going wild and then you know one farm over the guy's sitting there saying well gosh it wasn't that great for me today um so Mm -hmm. it's you have to be out there i mean that's the that's the rule of thumb and you have to be where the does are uh, because that's where the bucks are going to be. So if you think about it in simple terms, keep it very fundamental. Um, where are the does? And and uh, you got to hunt as close to those places as you can without setting them on edge. So that's the art. The art is is how do you uh, manage your impact? How do you manage uh, the the way that you get in and out? And uh, you know stuff like that. I mean that's. That's key, not just to keep those bucks from knowing that you're there. That's probably less of a factor than uh, having those does know that you're there. So that's if you keep it simple, you just try to figure out, okay, where are the does at right now? If I'm going to go out, uh, I need to be close to them because that's where the bucks are going to be. They're looking for that hot doe. And then you get to a certain point in the rut and everything kind of slows way down. You know, There's not a whole lot that you can do then except just wait it out. And then on the backside of it, um, you can start to see some, you know, bucks moving again and getting back on their feet after that, that peak estrus time. Everybody thinks the peak of the rut is when they should be hunting, but um, the peak of breeding is is the lull. You know, that's when there's so many does in estrus that, you know, the bucks aren't really cruising that much. So it's that buildup on the front end of that. The bucks are looking for that first hot doe or that next hot doe. Um, that's when it really is the classic rut because everything goes wild on those first few hot does. And then it settles into this more of a business-like thing, you know, where the bucks are like, okay, well, I know where the does are at. I'm going to, you know, as soon as I finish up with this one, I know right where to go to find the next one. I don't have to run all over the place. So everybody thinks that the bucks are running all over the place. They're not. The only time they are is when there's a hot doe right there. Um, So hunt those prime times, hunt that front end of the rut when they're, there's not very many does in estrus and try to be there when that first one pops, because that's when the real excitement takes place. And then after that, you just got to be around the does often enough and long enough that you catch one that's in 
and the bucks, you know, have figured that out and they found her and they're, you know, trying to corner her someplace near your tree stand. Um, that's the rut, uh, in, in a nutshell. Right. And there, there's lots of ways to, to spin that. Like, Oh, you got to sit in funnels. You got to do this. You got, you know, basically it's pretty straightforward. You know, the does are heading toward their bedding areas in the mornings. That's where you need mm-hmm. to be in the evenings, especially early in the rut, they're heading toward where they feed. That's where you need to be. Mm-hmm. Then as the rut goes on, they stop going to those feeding areas in the evenings because they get harassed too much. So you stay mm-hmm. back away from those feeding areas, probably after about the 7th or so, 7th or 8th of November. In yeah, most I was going to ask you on that lockdown period, I know that it varies by by region, by location, and also year to year. But generally speaking, when you're planning uh, for the Midwest and where you live in Iowa and, you know, around Illinois and maybe Missouri, that area of the country, what do you consider the most consistent lockdown period? If you were going to say there was a date that you say from about this date mm-hmm. to this date is going to be generally the lockdown. 12 to, 12 to the 18th can be pretty slow. Um, okay. Yeah. You start coming out and, and you get the rifle seasons and the gun seasons in there in some states, but in the state like Iowa, where you, you have the entire month of November, for, for archery, um, we get a chance to see what they do every single day. And I've been doing it for 30 years, you know, so I've seen 30 mm-hmm. ruts, you know, basically every single day of 30 ruts. And uh, mm-hmm. they really fall into that, that lull, that lockdown, uh, not to say you can't kill stuff. You know, I've killed a few during the middle of November, but not very dang many. Uh, most of mine All are right. between, are, are before the 10th, 11th, and then after the 20th. And I've had pretty good success after the 20th, believe it or not. Uh, but uh, very rarely do I kill in that time frame from about the 13th to the 18th. Um, that's, that can be a tough week. So if you can plan around your vacation, try not to be, you know, in the core whitetail states during that lull. You're better off being on right. the very front end of it. Um, and the back end, like if you're in Iowa, you know, the back end can be really good too. But most states by then, you know, the gun seasons have already come in and, and it's tougher. Sure. So your 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 number one pointers there are basically to hunt those prime times before and after yep. the, the the lockdown, and yep. to man isolate those does. Figure yep. out where they're at. Um, play that game where you're on the edge of them without trying yep. with without impacting them um, as close as you can. And that's that's uh, that's the best way to increase your 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 success going into this year. And there's little start yep, studying there's, that. Yep, and there's little tricks, you know, in all of that, and that's the art of deer hunting. Um, you know, sure. it's pretty straightforward to give some simple fundamental advice, but then how you apply that in each specific place that you hunt—that's the art. And uh, right, one of the things that I've really liked uh, on on the farm was these little small—I call them uh, staging area food plots, little you know half acre maximum one acre little food plots etched out back in the timber someplace or back in the corner of a bigger field um there's a lot of places like that and and it's tougher to get that going right now you know because the planting season has passed but if you can go in there and take a natural opening and mow it just mow it right you'll be you'll be shocked how they had how they had adopt that spot as sort of their staging area you know, they'll come out of their bedding areas, they'll kind of mill around, scrape around the edge of that. Maybe they'll nibble away on some browse and then they'll move off towards those larger feeding areas. And then in the mornings, as they're working their way back in towards their beds, this is going to be one of the last places where they're on their feet in daylight. Uh, so I made a really a, a, a good, you know, successful 
career, if you want to call it that, out of hunting these little small staging area plots. And they're pretty easy to make. Uh, we call them poor man yeah. plots. I mean, you can make them with almost no budget at all. Um, That's my we kind do of it plot. All. Yeah, <laughs> we do it all the time, you know, and, and uh, that's the one little tip, the one little trick, if you want to call it that, of maximizing, you know, some of these fundamentals is just like, okay, how do you apply this information? One of the best ways to apply it is to have one of these, you know, or, or as many of these little staging area plots as you can have, because uh, those are just killer spots, because the does are going to be coming through those. Um, yeah. And that means the bucks are going to be there consistently, mornings and evenings. So cool. just mowing a little spot there will allow some green shoots and stuff like that, or better access to the green that's underneath there is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, and for some reason, they're, just, they're more comfortable, you know, scraping around the edges of it and just poking around. I mean, um, you know, they're curious animals too, you know, so it's like, you know, you mow a spot and right away within the next few days, they're going to check it out and see what's going on there. And pretty soon they'll yeah. kind of make that part of their their travel cycle. Um, but ideally you would plant something, you know, clover or some kind of a brassica blend, you know, like the turnips and stuff that'll do well in you know, limited sunlight. Um, but, uh, that's, uh, that's the one thing I've learned, you know, maybe about how to set up a property that, that, uh, the most important thing I've probably learned over the years is just having these little small spots and they're nothing special, but boy, they're really easy to bow hunt, really easy to bow hunt. Well, that's, Terrific advice, Bill. Um, we're getting a little past an hour here, and we want to <laughs> save some material with Winky because you're going to be back more than you probably want to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always yeah. fun. I mean, gosh. I mean, it's like talking to old friends on the telephone, really. I mean, we just happen to have some other people that get to listen in. But as far as I'm concerned, yeah. I mean, we could do this every single day. Yeah, no. I, yeah, I'm not kidding. I love it. Yeah, I know we, that me and Jeremy are – we're whitetail geeks, you know. I know Jeremy is. He's a geek in a lot of ways, but I mean, especially <laughs> whitetail geek. Oh, I love whitetails. I mean, I, oh. I, I remember growing up, and I, every time I'd get field and stream or outdoor life, I'd have a whitetail on it. I'm like, why are there always whitetails on the front of this? Because I was a mule deer and an elk, yeah. you know, growing up in the West. And once I went on my first whitetail hunt, it was over. Like I yep. could not believe it i couldn't get enough and i've been back every year and and multiple times a year when i can so yeah i and i'm because you know i don't get to live it every day for all year long and do food plots and scout them i mean i'm not very good i I don't know a lot so whenever i talk to winky i'm just like a sponge man i'm just soaking it up and trying to remember as much as i can me too and i'm in the same boat with him bill um I was raised by a grandfather from West Texas who taught me that whitetails were carp deer. They were throwaways. <laughs> they, you know, he would rather go shoot jackrabbits than whitetails. And yeah. growing up here in Colorado and hunting mule deer and elk, you know, you would see these guys that were, uh, um, that was the beginning of the VHS video area era in the, uh, in the eighties when I was, when I was starting to bow hunt and, um, and, you would watch these videos and these guys are just spraying themselves down with all this stuff and wearing knee high rubber boots. And I was watching these guys like these guys are idiots, you know, like (laughs) this is the most unnecessary thing I've ever seen in my life. And the first whitetail hunt I went on was when I was, I had just joined the military. I was in my early twenties and I was in Virginia 
And I remember walking across this alfalfa field to a, uh, a tree stand we had set up a few days before on a piece of public out there. And uh, um, I walk across this field and I get up in that tree stand. It was some cheap rickety ladder stand that we put up. And a couple hours later, this doe comes walking across that alfalfa field. Um, maybe not a couple hours, but sometime later, she hits she hits this, you know, spot in the alfalfa field and just comes unwound and takes off like a cannon, you know, and I was like, the wind was blowing the right way and I I hadn't moved a muscle. She was 200 yards from me. And I'm like, what is her problem? You know what I mean? And uh, about 30 minutes later comes this little, uh, I don't, he was probably a year and a half old buck. He looked like a four corn out there and he hits almost the same spot and boom comes unwound and he's out of there the same way and it suddenly dawned on me that that's where i walked in you know (laughs) and and i like from from that moment on i've been so fascinated with these animals and you know i've i've told people a lot my favorite animal my favorite game animal to hunt is elk and I'm going to have some friends that kick me straight in the head when they hear me say this. But if I had to choose between mule deer and whitetail, it, 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 it's not a choice for me. I'm a whitetail guy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I still love hunting mule deer. But if I had to choose between the two, I am going to be bow hunting whitetails in the rut or, you know, around the rut. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that's interesting, I think, about whitetails is their ranges are fairly small compared to mule deer. You know, so the average yeah. guy out east here can have certain deer that they might see a couple times a season for four years. I mean, yeah. try that on 40 acres out in Eastern Colorado. Can't do it. Um, that's right. Yeah. So I think that's what fascinates people with whitetails is because they, they truly are the ultimate backyard game animal. Um, yeah. They, they, their ranges, some of them are heck I've hunted them where their ranges were, you know, 30 acres, you know, total. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you get deer like well, that, it, it's, it makes it, it more personal for more people. For sure. Yeah. 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 There's, you can certainly, like you were saying, if you get the right 40 in the Midwest or, or in any good whitetail state, you can have great hunting, but you buy, you buy a 40 acre piece in, in Colorado and, and, uh, man, it better be really, really, really right. Like, right <laughs> 40 acre alfalfa field. field or something. <laughs> yeah. You don't yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be something like that. Otherwise, I mean, just cause their range, even the whitetail range here is so much larger. We, we, we had a deer one year that we were hunting here in Eastern Colorado that, uh, he was, a, he was a big eight point whitetail and he was in front of my stand. I missed him. Um, uh one morning and i think it was it was 24 hours later he was in front of kurt wells's stand on camera six miles away as the crow flies you know and they can they'll travel during the rut as well but the um generally speaking they they do inhabit a much smaller area you know especially in that uh, the further east you go and the more cover you have but anyway bill it was uh it was a real pleasure catching up with you buddy and um, we're going to do this again for sure um we wish you luck on your upcoming hunts and uh I, I I wish myself luck too because I know I need it. <laughs> well, I'll take and, luck. I'll take luck. Hey man, you, know, you always it always takes a little. I don't care yeah. how good you are. 
it always takes a little. Oh, for so, sure. On behalf of everybody here at the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast, thank is thank you everybody for tuning in and thanks for being here, Bill. And we will run into you guys somewhere down the trail. See you yep. soon. See you guys later. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, you bet. My pleasure. <laughs>